You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the September 2023 edition of Editor's Picks. I want to thank you for having taken the time to listen to this podcast. This month, I will begin by speaking to Drs. Jenna McGoldrich and Jennifer Barton on behalf of the authors of a paper entitled An Evaluation of Burnout Among U.S. Rheumatology Fellows, a a National Survey. The authors will give you an overview of the findings of the paper. And so, now the punchline. What did you find? Yes. So we found that over one-third, 38.5% of PGY4 and 16.7% of PGY5-6 rheumatology fellows were found to have at least one symptom of burnout when assessing burnout using the single-item measures for emotional exhaustion and depersonalization, as I previously mentioned, that were adapted from the full um, MBI. And then We also found that a thematic analysis of open-ended responses identified factors that helped to reduce burnout, including exercise, family, friends, sleep, support at work, and hobbies. And then factors that were perceived to contribute to burnout were pager, documentation, long hours, and demands of patient care. Anything to add, Dr. Barton? No, I think, you know, the other interesting factor was that, you know, the the first year fellows or the PGY4s, they were, you know, and, and being younger was associated with, you know, a, a higher uh, odds of having burnout as well. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, so it's the early, you know, the earlier trainees were more um, at risk. I hope you enjoyed listening to doctors Emma Goldrick and Barton review the findings of their study and evaluation of burnout among U.S. Rheumatology Fellows, a national survey. I think you will enjoy listening to the full interview and reading the full-length article. I also suggest that you read an accompanying editorial regarding this article titled, Addressing Rheumatology Resident Well-Being is Critical to the rheumatology workforce and care of our patients. And it's by Drs. Dana Jerome and Alan Zhao from the Division of Rheumatology, University of Toronto, Toronto, Canada. Both the paper and the editorial are currently available on our website at www.jroom.org. And of course, we'll be in the September print edition of the journal. The next paper to highlight is titled Factors Associated with Maintenance of Remission Following Change from Combination Therapy to Monotherapy in Patients with Rheumatoid Arthritis and is by Curtis and colleagues. Following the achievement of remission, tapering of combination therapy may be indicated in RA. In this paper, 
Curtis and colleagues examined the patient characteristics that were associated with the maintenance of remission following a change from combination to monotherapy. This was a phase three multicenter double-blind and randomized withdrawal study of 253 patients who had achieved an SDAI remission. Patients were randomized to receive either 50 milligrams of etanercept weekly plus placebo, orally, oral methotrexate plus subcutaneous placebo, or were maintained on both etanercept and methotrexate. The investigators found that longer disease duration of remission on the combination therapy, a younger age, and a lower patient global assessment at study entry were all associated with a sustained remission at 48 weeks. However, physician global assessment was not significantly associated with the maintenance of remission. Lower odds of maintaining remission were associated with a higher swollen joint count, tender joint count, and DAS-28 CRP, while a higher methotrexate dose was associated with an increased odds of maintaining remission. One other interesting observation was that there was an association of serum magnesium level with the maintenance of remission, and this varied by treatment. Please read this paper to get further baseline characteristics that were associated with an increased odds of maintaining remission following change from combination to monotherapy, and Reasons why magnesium levels may be important in RA in the achievement and or maintenance of remission. Lupus nephritis is associated with end-stage kidney disease and death. Pathologic studies can identify inflammation and the extent of irreversible damage. The aim of this study entitled Renal Histopathology Associated with Kidney Failure and Mortality in Patients with Lupus Nephritis, a long-term real-world data study by Lau and colleagues, was to identify histologic variables that correlated with the risk of developing end-stage renal disease and death. This was a retrospective study of 526 patients with biopsy-proven lupus nephritis who were followed for a median of 7.5 years. 80% of the patients had proliferative lupus nephritis with or without associated membranous nephritis. Overall, 11% of the patients developed end-stage renal disease and 12% died. Nine of the 64 patients who had developed end-stage renal disease prior to death. The main causes of death in the 64 patients 
were active disease in 73%, infection 16%, malignancy 6%, and cardiovascular or cerebrovascular disease in 5%. Examination of the histological parameters that predicted end-stage renal disease were the presence of tubular atrophy and tubular interstitial inflammation and the number of nephritic flares. And an accompanied editorial titled Prognostic Stratification of Lupus Nephritis, the Importance of Renal Histology by Dr. Chi Chu Mok from the Tuming Hospital, Hong Kong, outlined some of the limitations of examining multiple predictive factors, even in a cohort of greater than 500 individuals. He also outlines that other poor prognostic factors may be present in addition to ones identified by Liao and colleagues, and these include age, the type of immunosuppressive medication used, importantly, adherence to medication, and time to referral. The original article and Dr. Mark's editorial outlined the importance of renal histology and other factors in the prognosis of patients with lupus nephritis. The fourth article to highlight is titled Traditional and Disease-Specific Factors for Cardiovascular Events in Anti-Neutrophil Cytoplasmic Antibody-Associated Vasculitis, a multinational retrospective study, and is by Moisev and colleagues. In this large multinational study, 2,284 patients with ANCA-associated vasculitis were followed for a median of 64 months. 51% had MPA and 43% GPA. 73% of the cohort had renal involvement, with the majority having impaired renal function at presentation, with approximately one-third having had a GFR of less than 15 mils per minute per 1.73 meter squared. In the total cohort, 10.7% of patients developed a cardiovascular event, of which 8.1% had an MI and 3.2% a stroke. The, the incidence of a cardiovascular event differed in patients between different countries. Death occurred in 19.9% of the cohort. The median time from disease onset to cardiovascular event was 17.5 months. Multivariate analysis showed that age greater than 55 years, smoking, Chinese origin, and the presence of pulmonary and kidney involvement were all independent risk factors for the development of a cardiovascular event. In an accompanying editorial titled, For Your Eyes Only, 
007 tips for the management of cardiovascular risk factors and anti-neutrophil cytoplasm antibody-associated vasculitis. Dr. Jan Wilhelm Cohen-Tervert from the University of Alberta, Edmonton, Canada, outlined seven important issues that may lead to better cardiovascular outcomes in patients with antineutrophil cytoplasmic antibody-associated vasculitis. In the discussion, Mosev et al. outlined potential reasons for the differences in the frequency of cardiovascular events by country of origin and potentially newer strategy that may improve cardiovascular health in addition to the obvious of better disease control. These two articles are important in understanding and hopefully improving cardiovascular health in patients with antineutrophil cytoplasmic antibody-associated vasculitis. The final article to bring your attention to examines the important issue of academic achievement in patients with chronic childhood onset rheumatic diseases. It, it, isn't, it is titled, Do Patients with Early Disease Severity Predict Grade 12 Academic Achievement in Youth with Childhood Onset Chronic Rheumatic Diseases? and is by Lim and Collings. The authors studied 541 patients with a childhood onset rheumatic disease who were in grade 12 in the province of Manitoba, Canada. The majority of patients at 92% had JAA. The mean disease duration was 7.2%. Five years and 70% of the cohort were female. The primary outcomes were language and arts achievement index and mass achievement index scores from grade 12 standardized test results. Overall, as compared to the total population taking the test, the mean scores were 0.8 two for both test results. After adjustment for covariates, severe disease was associated with poor scores in both of the tests, but there was no difference in age-appropriate enrollment. Although socioeconomic factors strongly predicted score outcomes, patients with severe disease performed more poorly in grade 12 standard testing than those with mild or moderate disease severity, which was independent of socio-demographic and psychiatric risk factors. The author suggests that early identification of factors associated with poor language and math scores can lead to early interventions that may improve outcomes. The expert review article this month is titled Type 1 Interference in Autoimmunity, Implications in Clinical Phenotypes and Treatment Responses, and is by Londe and colleagues 
This article reviews how dysregulation of type 1 interferons is important in SLE, dermatomyositis, RA, primary Sjogren's syndrome, and systemic sclerosis. They also discuss strategies of either directly or indirectly targeting the type 1 interferon system. The image in rheumatology this month describes an 82-year-old man with a 13-year history of RA who presented with a one-month history of multiple subcutaneous nodules on the fingers of both hands. These were tended to be soft, not firm. At the time of presentation, his treatment was 6 milligrams per week of methotrexate and 10 milligrams per day of prednisolol, a needle aspiration of one of the nodules yielded a purulent fluid on which the ZN stain showed numerous acid-fast bacilli. Culture of this fluid, as well as a blood culture, were both positive for mycobacterium hemophilium. After three months of therapy, the nodules decreased in size and number. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encourage you to read not only the articles I've highlighted, but all the articles in the September 2023 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in the print or online edition, which is available at www.jroom.org. And I encourage you to watch the interviews that I have of the highlighted articles of this month and of previous months if you have missed them. They are available for viewing both at our website and on YouTube. If you have any comments or questions on these highlighted articles or any articles in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com and please listen next month to the October edition of Editor's Highlights. Thank you.